I, I really am excited to be able to bring God's word to this morning with you all. And we're actually going to go backwards a little bit. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12. You can open your Bibles there. And um, just don't worry. This doesn't mean that David now needs to back up and go over 13, 14, 15, and 16 again with us. Um, but we're going to look at Acts chapter 12 from a different angle. And this, what I loved about when we went through 12 before was David took time, Pastor David, to really look at Herod Agrippa and who he was as a person. Because I think often when we come to Scripture, we read it like either we're over-familiar with it, and so we read it like, I've heard this story before, so I'll just move on past it. Or we read it in such a way where we think, well, these aren't real people, or we just remove ourselves from it. And the, the fact of the matter is, these were real historical events. These are moments in time in history that, that God was revealing himself. And, and make no mistake, no matter who we look at, no matter what people we see in Scripture, there is one hero of this book, and it is God himself. That is the point of what he's doing. He uses people to accomplish his purposes and to reveal his character. And I think we see something amazing in Acts chapter 12 about God's character. I believe as a church, if we will lay hold of it and we will understand it, it will change our lives. I want us to see this morning in Acts chapter 12 that God is sovereign, that God is in control, which I think is easy to say. I think if we took a survey here this morning and asked everybody, who believes God's in control? Nobody would say, well, not me, I don't, not me. I think he's partly in control. Sometimes he's in control. But I'm curious if we really live lives that are convinced of that truth. Because I believe we live differently when we really own that truth in our life. One of my favorite verses in scripture is 2 Timothy 3.14, where Paul is writing Timothy and he tells him, continue in what you've believed and what you've become convinced of. And he's letting him know there's, there's a difference between what we believe and what's we're, what is a conviction. When I, we had done some church planning years ago in central Texas, and one of the guys in our church let us rent a house from him, and it was on a ranch, so I was, I was straight up country you guys. I mean, I was cowboyed up. Not really, but um, I did my best to be a cowboy. I still have never owned boots or a hat, but he had horses on there, and part of the rental agreement is that we would help take care of the horses for him. And so I remember taking Ella. Ella, my daughter now is 16, but she was probably three or four years old. That's right. She's right there. And we were walking to go feed the horses. And as we were walking out to feed the horses, there was this line of ants. Now, those, now I'm talking Texas size ants. I don't know what they're called, but those big fat red ones that look just like they want to mess you up. And they were doing this perfect line and they were going in their little hole and she spotted them from way off in the distance, could see that line. And immediately she said, daddy, pick me up. And I was like, what, what is happening? And I realized she saw the ants. And so I thought, well, this is a teachable moment. And so I, I walked her up to the ants and I said, no, let's, let's just step over them. You don't have to be afraid of the ants. And she was like, no, daddy, pick me up. And so I stepped over the ants and looked back and she was like, pick me up. So I stepped back over, look at this, just do this, look how easy this is. And she picked me up. And so I, I knelt down, I'm not gonna do it today because I might not get back up, but I knelt down and looked her in the eyes and I said, do you, do you believe daddy loves you? And she said, yes. And I said, do you, do you believe I would always protect you and keep you from harm? Yes. Okay, then step over the ants. And she said, pick me up. And I did. As a loving father, I picked her up and we walked to go feed the horses. But I, what hit me at that moment was she was saying with her lips she believed those things, but she wasn't convinced. 
Now, as a loving father, I overcame that lack of faith in the moment. But I think we often speak with our lips. We believe God's in control. But we do, do we live lives that prove that out? And so in Acts chapter 12, we're going to walk through this entire passage. And I think you're going to see moments where God proves himself faithful no matter the circumstances. God is revealing his character. And and let me start by saying this. You will never find in scripture a place where God makes a defense for his existence. He never has to prove he exists. It's kind of like, you're dumb if you don't think I exist. He doesn't need to prove his existence. But what he does reveal is his character. Because I think ultimately that is the struggle of humanity. is not in God's existence, but is he good? What is he like? And so God is revealing his character. We're going to see in verse 12. So if you're wondering when lunch will begin, when the chapter's over, you'll know lunchtime is coming. So you've got a good gauge this morning. Sometimes you don't know how long David's going to go. I'm giving you a clock. You can click on it, and so you can be like, hey, it's halfway through this chapter. You might want to wrap this up a little bit and speed me along. So I don't need to see any of that. Don't, none of that stuff. We'll just, we'll go through the chapter. um, And as we talk through it, we're just going to have moments where I'm just going to walk you through a picture of it. And you're going to kind of see how my mind works a little bit this morning. Um, I'm very visual, and when I read through Scripture, I like to picture the events that are taking place. Because I know these are real events, and so sometimes I get sucked into them a little bit. So forgive me if I get sucked into them. Just go along for the ride. I mean, I don't preach that often, so you just have to take this ride occasionally. So let's begin. Acts chapter 1, chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. Now, picture what's happening here. We, we saw that Agrippa had some, some issues in his life when we last taught through this chapter that he was trying to please. He was a really a people pleaser. And at this moment, he's killed James, the brother of John. So think about this for the moment. You've you've got the 12 apostles, and then you've got really the three, the inner three, who would be the leaders of those apostles, James, John, and Peter. And he's already killed James. I mean, the church has just been birthed, and James is now dead. And Herod sees that the Jews are happy about this, so he said, if they like the number three guy dead, I can do even better. I'll get Peter, and I'll put him to death. They'll really love me through this. Things do not look good. And I, I think this is a, a quick reminder. I, I often hear people say, I, w- I wish we could just get back to like the first century church. If we could just be the first century church. And I know what they're really trying to mean, but I, I often like to say, have you read the New Testament? Because, I mean, James is dead. Peter's about to be killed. The church is being persecuted. This is not good times. This isn't like, boy, these things look nice. They're prospering. The church was birthed in one of the most tribulant times that the church could possibly be birthed. But God has a plan in the middle of this. And so the second half of verse four says, and when he had seized him, so when Herod had taken Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of of soldiers to guard him. So that's 16 soldiers that are guarding Peter. Now, if you remember back to verse five, Peter's a jailbreaker. He's already been arrested once and beaten, thrown in prison. Herod's not going to let that happen again. So he's, he's arresting him and saying, you're not getting out this time like you did in chapter 5. He probably didn't refer to chapter 5. But back in chapter 5, you're not getting out of this. You're going to stay in prison. So he's got all these soldiers guarding him. 
And then it says in the second half, verse four, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now make no mistake, bring him out as fancy Bible speak to say he's going to be killed. It's a way to soften that. When he says Herod's gonna bring him out, he's going to bring him out to kill him before the people. And we're gonna see that more clearly here a little bit in the passage. So don't lose sight of what is happening here. Peter's in prison, he's been beaten, he's been thrown in prison. He's now waiting for his execution. But look at verse five. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest or sometimes translated fervent prayer. I wonder how often as a people we have earnest prayer. I'm not talking about the moments where you're driving to work and you're like, hey, I'll just have a conversation with God for a few moments or hey, I'll have a quiet time and just say, hey, God, how are you this morning? It's good to see you. You got anything you want me to do today? I'm, I'm gonna be listening. I'm convinced that the fervency or the earnestness of our prayer is directly tied to the urgency and the ferventness of what is happening in our life. We pray very differently when our spouse is diagnosed with cancer than we do for when our child has to have an exam. There's a, there's a difference in our prayer life because the, the events call for that. And so we're, we're beginning to see the, the importance of this moment. The church is desperate because right now they're about to be left leaderless. Right at its beginning, Peter is about to die and they know great suffering has already started and will continue. So the first thing I want you to hear this morning is God is in control when we suffer. Things look bad. There's not a lot of hope in this moment. But yet God is in control. And I think our natural inclination, and I don't think, I used to think it was just a Western church problem, but the last nine years spending time overseas, I realized this is just a humanity problem. We avoid suffering like the plague. Plague, I guess, would be a suffering. But we, we don't want suffering. And I'm not saying I'm sadist. I'm not saying, ooh, suffering. I'm looking for it. I mean, I'm really spiritual if I'm suffering. That's not what I mean by that. But our, our natural inclination when suffering happens is we want to get away from it as fast as possible. Or we equate God's character to that suffering. A few weeks ago when, when the, the troubles in Afghanistan were really beginning to grow, we have lots of, friend who have, lots of friends who have been serving in Afghanistan as missionaries. And so I called a friend who, was, who oversees security in the country, and I asked, Did, has everybody gotten out? And it was, it was a day or two after the real everything hit the fan. And he said, yeah, we got everybody out two days before all the missionaries now have left Afghanistan. And I was relieved, and he said, but let me, let me tell you a story that I think will encourage you. And when, when serving in the Middle East, we, there are three major markers that we celebrated as missionaries with people in the Middle East. There's, there's obviously the moment when people come to faith. That's an exciting moment. When any time a Muslim gives his, faith, gives his life to Christ or her life to Christ, it's a big deal. Uh, because they're, they're not only rejecting Islam, they're rejecting their entire life. And they're, they're coming into a moment where they're saying, this may cost me everything to make this decision. So it's not like, hey, I'll walk an aisle and I'll feel good about it. When they come to faith, it's a time to be excited. And so we would celebrate that moment, but we'd often see people come to faith, and, but they would say, well, I don't want to tell anybody. I mean, I, I'm good, but I'll keep it quiet. And, and really what happened, they hadn't, they hadn't found Jesus worthy of suffering yet. 
And so really the next, the next marker was one we would celebrate much bigger is when they would commit to be baptized because now it was a public profession. They were going to, to be baptized in front of other people and say, I am now a follower of Jesus. And it was a big deal. That typically led to them being kicked out of their families, losing their jobs. So it was a big deal. But the greatest moment that we would celebrate in believers' life is when they were willing to change their ID card. Because when you're born in the Middle East, you're, you have, you're born with an ID card that tells you what your historical religious upbringing is, basically. So if you were an Orthodox Christian family, I mean, history, just you know, thousands of years ago, your, your parents were Catholic or Greek Orthodox or whatever it might be, then you're born with Christian on your ID card. But if you're born Muslim, it should always say Muslim. It should never change. So you have to go in and request it to be changed. And it's a terrifying moment for a believer because now they're letting the government know that they've come to faith in Christ and they want to be identified with Christ. And so this is a big moment. And so I, I share that backstory to tell you when I was talking to my friend over security in Afghanistan, he said, you know, when, when the U.S. started talking about their pullout and the Taliban began to move north, so at the very beginning, he said there were more than 100 believers that went to the office of the Ministry of Security and, and changed their ID because they were willing to be counted in that suffering. They wanted to be known because they knew what was coming and they weren't willing to be put, put Christ aside. And I, and I know, I think our hearts and our flesh naturally is when we say, well, let's pray for believers. We pray for safety. And that's our natural inclination. And I, I'll be honest, if I was in a dangerous situation, I would want this church to be praying God say, keep him safe. But I don't know if that's the right way to pray. Because if God is most glorified in their death, then as God's people, that's what we should pray for. And it sounds counterintuitive. It sounds like the wrong thing to say. But the reality is if we trust that God is in control, even in our suffering, then we say, God, take their lives so that you would be glorified among them in their death and it's hard it's easy to pray it in a nice air conditioned sanctuary sitting in safety it's another thing to pray it when you're in the middle of that but I would tell you right now those brothers and sisters would they've they've outwardly said I would be, want to be counted with Christ and be glorified in my him be glorified in my death and ever him not get glory in my life and being protected and so I share all that to say God is in control in our suffering. That we don't need to do a dotted line to God's character, which is naturally what we do. If things are good, God is good. If things are bad, God is bad. But that's not the truth. Imagine this just for a minute. The world is not all about you. I know that's a shocking statement this morning. But I don't know if we always live lives where we believe that truth. That believe it or not, God is accomplishing much bigger purposes than you can imagine. And that what he does with your life is good. And it doesn't matter how sincere your walk is. It doesn't matter that, hey, I have a quiet time every day. Sincerity does not exempt you from suffering. Or if you think, well, I'm not only sincere, but I also, I serve the Lord. I mean, I'm in the nursery every single week. I'm a serious sufferer for Jesus. Service does not exempt you from suffering. And let me, hear, let, me let you hear this morning if you've walked with God for 50 years of your life closely and deeply, your stature will not exempt you from suffering. In fact, the closer and closer we walk, and the closer and closer we love our Lord, the fact is he tells us suffering will come. It should not shock us and surprise us. 
but in fact we should take joy in that suffering God is at work even when we suffer which brings me to my second point God is not only in control when we suffer but God is in control when there seems to be no way out look at verse 6 now when Herod was about to bring him out so he's bringing him out to the people to kill him on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison so Peter's about to die he knows it the church knows it everybody knows it and what is Peter doing the night before he's catching up on his sleep Peter knows I'm going to see Jesus in the morning I'm going to be well rested when I see him face to face he knew something that we need to hold get a hold of that when there seems to be no way out it doesn't matter because God is in control I don't know how many times I've laid at night worrying about something that was coming the next day and I'm not talking about I, I know there are bigger things I know there are moments that are huge maybe it's a you're waiting on a diagnosis of you've they found a spot on your lung I'm not I'm not making light of circumstances I'm making the largeness of our God bigger because that's what it comes down to. When my worry tells a different story than what my lips say. When I say, I believe God's in control, but there's no way out of this situation. It's impossible. And what I'm really saying is I don't believe God is in control, that I have a better plan. And that's really what our anxiety says. Our anxiety is telling the world and others that my answer to this situation is better than his. And that's simply not true. Our God is good and he has a big plan. He has a, he has a great plan and he's working those things out. And so even when there doesn't seem to be a way out, God is in control. Because we're down to the wire here with Peter's life and he's taking a nap. Uh, we're gonna see, it's more than a nap. He is, he is asleep, sound, sound asleep. And then in verse seven, it says, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. God's timing and everything is perfect. Now, now, let me tell you, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. And what I mean by that is sometimes we read scripture and we think, oh, this is how God always acts. He has to do it. So really what I need to do is I need to sleep with one eye open the night before something hard and say, when's the angel gonna show up? Because that's what God has to do. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is God has a plan. And even if God chose to let Peter die, just like he did James and just like he has done Stephen to this point, God has not lost his control in the situation. In fact, he knows exactly what he's doing. And in this moment, he has a purpose. And so he shows up, and the angel shows up in the cell, and the light shows. And look, look at what happens with Peter in verse 7, second half of verse 7. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. This, this Greek word, this, this word struck, is the same word that's used in Luke twenty two twenty four 24 when Peter strikes the guard and cuts his ear off. So it wasn't like he just patted Peter. I mean, he, whatever the angel did to wake him up was serious. He had to strike Peter, and Peter was just groggy. Like, I mean, Peter was sleeping hard. He had no concerns for the next day. He was going to die. He had no indication that God would do this. There was no guarantee. James has already been put death to the sword. The everything said he was dying in the morning and he is sound asleep because he knew God was in control regardless of what was gonna happen next. But yet God in his grace shows up, the, the angel strikes him, the chains fall off. And then I always picture this moment 
like when you're trying to get your child up for school in the morning and he, they just will not wake up. And so you're kind of coaxing them. Now, I'm sure this has never happened to anybody. So in, you, we're looking at the second half of verse 8. He says, and he did so, and he said to him, wrap your cloak around you. So Peter's just kind of standing up in his underwear, like, what, what is happening here? Wrap your cloak around you. Follow me. And he went out and he followed him. Peter still, he did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He's, he's so groggy, he's not even sure what's happening is real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. I'd love that little sentence. Angels don't touch doors. They're just like, nope, open up. Even back then they were COVID safe. Just, nope, I'm not going to touch that. Uh, the door just opens on their own. And when they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left them. When Peter finally came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were, ex were expecting. It was a miracle, but it came at the very last moment. Peter didn't need this moment to trust that God was in control. But yet God was saying, it is not over yet. And I want you to hear this this morning. If there is lung, if there is breath in your lungs, God is not finished with you yet. I had, I had a very romantic, romantic idea of missions before we went overseas. I was probably what most people, people think of when they think of missions, that once I get overseas, once I learn a language, once these people that we go to know that we've given up everything to come to them, they're just going to fall on their knees. What must I do to be saved? That's the picture that, oh, they just don't know. Once we get there, what's going to happen? It's just so exciting. I mean, we, we, I did a trip to Turkey before we went there and there, saw the statistics, 80 million people, less than 3,000 believers. And in my arrogance and ignorance, I thought, well, that's just because we're not there yet. Wait until we show up. Like God wasn't already working. My God was like, finally, somebody's going to be faithful. I, I just couldn't save anybody until you got there. I mean, that's my own sinfulness. But through that process, and as we began to learn language culture, I, I started to realize these people didn't want us there. They weren't impressed that we had given up everything to come to them. They weren't impressed with our language. In fact, I'd studied for two and a half years in language, still have people say, are you stupid? I mean, just straight to your face. Are you stupid? Because you sound stupid when you speak Turkish. Oh, thanks. Your English is bad. You look stupid. That's what I wanted to say, but I didn't. <laughs> Two and a half years of day in and day out, full-time language, somebody tells you you sound stupid. Whew, it still riles me up even thinking about it right now. But they didn't care. They didn't want us there. And I remember at a point just feeling desperate. Like, Lord, do I care more about these people than you do? Because they're not coming to faith we dropped everything, came here, I've suffered through this. I have never prayed for the gift of tongues harder in my life than going through language study every day. I just wanted to speak Turkish because I was, I was convinced that was the problem. And really what God was doing was he was refining me and reminding me, I don't need you to do anything. I, I'm full, firmly convinced there will be a day we will see God face to face and we will think, why in the world did I worry about anything? Because the truth of the matter is, it doesn't, there is no over with God. Even in our death, it's just the next stage of life. And the fact that there could be these incredible numbers of lostness does not change the fact that God is in control. 
God is in control even when there doesn't seem to be any hope, even when there doesn't seem to be any way out. Look at verse 12. When he realized this, so Peter's come to himself, he's, he's out of prison, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So John Mark's house, they're, they're gathered, that's where the church is gathered. So Peter's out, where many were gathered together and were praying. So anybody in here know what it's like to escape out of prison? Don't raise your hand this moment. So keep that eyes down on that. But you can imagine he's broken out of prison. And so he's thinking, where do I go? I'm going to go to where the church is gathered. And they're, I'm guessing he's assuming they're fervently praying for him. That's a pretty good assumption because they are. We've already heard that they're fervently in prayer for Peter. And so he shows up at this house and they're in this prayer meeting. And in verse 13, and when he knocked on the door of the gateway. So picture this for a moment. I'm gonna give the visual. So you've got a house that's probably got a little bit of a, a garden area or a yard, a small yard area, and then you've got an outer wall with a gate that you would come to first. And you know, this is the Middle East, doors, windows, they're open, but the gate is closed. So they're in there in prayer, the gate's closed, and they're desperate before the Lord. Peter shows up and he's at that outside gate. That's the gate that was closed so that you keep all your windows and doors open for the coolness of it, but that outside gate was closed. So that's where he's at. And a servant girl named Rhoda came to the answer. And, and this word servant implies that she's young. So she's probably 12 or 13 years old. So Rhoda hears him. She's probably in the back of the prayer meeting. This house is probably packed with people. As remember, over 5,000 people have already come to faith in Jerusalem. So this isn't a small meeting. They're packed into this house. Rhoda hears somebody's at the gate. So she goes out. Verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice. So she's heading towards the gate. She hears his voice. And in her joy, she did not open the gate. I love this moment. She doesn't open the voice. She hears it's Peter. She gets super excited. And she runs back into the meeting and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So picture this for a moment. They're in prayer, desperate prayer for Peter. We know it because they've already told us. And what do you think they're praying? I would imagine they're praying, God, save him. We need him. Don't let him die. I know James is dead, but please, Lord, save him. And now he's at the door, but look at their response. Verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. She's persistent, but she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. Now think about this for a moment. If Pastor David came running in these doors right now and said, there's an angel out front, I'm gonna give you a heads up now. I am mowing people down to get out of these doors. Women, children, I, I want to see an angel. You just get out of the way because it's going to happen. I'm not gonna sit in there and be like, David, just let them know we're busy in here. But what's fascinating about this moment is he, they don't say it is an angel. They say it is his angel. What they're really saying is while we're praying for God's deliverance, we think he's already dead. What they're saying is we don't believe God can do it. So I will tell you this morning, God is in control even when your faith is weak. The God of the universe is not bound by your level of faithfulness. And I am so grateful for this fact. God is not in heaven with a faith meter going, eh, you're not believing quite enough. If you believed a little more, 
then I might be able to do something. And I did a lot of training when we were overseas, and a lot of our missionaries that would come out of Africa had to deal with what's called the Word of Faith movement. It was kind of a movement that started after uh, Christianity really came to Africa. And I mean, Africa is one of the most reached places on earth, but what happened is the churches that were planted weren't necessarily biblically solid because they were so active. And, I, and I'll tell the people all this time, that a church that is active without a foundation leads to heresy. A church that is all about wisdom that does no action leads to ap- apathy, which is what often we see in the Western churches. They, we're filled with knowledge. We sit around and talk about how smart we are, but we do nothing. And we're apathetic. Where what young churches often happen is they're so excited about what God's done, but they don't get enough teaching and discipleship that they, they get out ahead of God and it leads to heresy. And this word of faith movement that came out through that was really about, it's a misunderstanding of Matthew 13. It's taking it out of context and making it sound like if our faith isn't right, then God is incapable of moving. And if our faith is strong enough, we can basically suck things out of God. Like he turns around and like, oh man, I didn't even see that happening. You were really praying today. I, I wasn't planning on helping you, but you were really faithful. And it is a heresy from the depths of hell. It is not true. When I first started in ministry, I was 20 years old. I'd not gone to seminary yet. And I was, oh, I was dumb. Uh, dumb now, but I was really dumb then. I didn't know what I was doing, but I had a faithful teacher, a wonderful man of God who brought me on staff and I was gonna do education and it was a smaller country church. And um, we had this, this one guy in our church and I'm gonna call him Jim just in case because this is on the internet. So I don't want Jim to know I'm talking about him. But we had this one guy in church that he was the kind of guy that you wondered, why do you come to church? I mean, I know God can change anybody, but you are awful. You're a grumpy. He would be the guy that during the sermon would really do this. Mm-hmm. It's time to go in the middle of it. And you'd look up, oh, I'm not going to look at him anymore. And he would sit there and just grumpy. And his wife was the kindest and sweetest woman. But he was just an awful human being at the time. And so it's my first day in ministry. I don't know what I'm doing. I've never done anything. I'm, I'm going to get trained. It's, it's going to start. And so I'm just going to go to the office by myself because my pastor's at a conference. And so, and his name is Glenn and he's gone. And so I'm just thinking, it was going to be a beautiful day. I'm going to go start getting some administrative stuff done. And my phone rings and it's Glenn. He said, hey, Jim's in the hospital and I'm at this conference, so I can't go. So I need you to go do a hospital visit. It would have been difficult if it would have just been anybody in the church, but it was Jim. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. And he said, look, I know it's going to be tough. And Here's more good news. His wife's not going to be there either because she's stuck in another town. She's going to try and make her way back. So you're going to be the first person there. And so I'm panicking. I'm like, what do I say, Glenn? What, what do I do? I have not been prepared for this moment. And he said, look, I got to get back in this meeting. Just don't say anything stupid. <laughs> and then he hung up on me. So I'm this little preacher boy. I got my Bible and I head up to the hospital and you know, at that time, you show up as a pastor, they, the apostles was like, you, are, you can go anywhere. It's pretty amazing. You just say, I'm a pastor. And they just, oh, sorry, just go on through. And so I'm going through, and I walk with confidence in the room, and there he is. He's sitting up, and he's, he's had a minor heart attack. And he's sitting up, and he's got his arms crossed watching me when I come in. And I've got my Bible, and I come and stand. And it felt like I stood there for 30 minutes. I don't know how long it was, but I just stood there. And so finally, I mean, he just let me stand in silence too. I think he loved watching me just sit there and sweat. And they finally looked at me and said, what do you got? 
And I held my Bible and I said, all I know is I'm not supposed to say anything stupid. And I just stood there and he laughed and laughed and he loved that he made me feel so uncomfortable. And so Glenn came out of this conference and got back and I met with him and said, what's up with the advice? I mean, that was one of the most awful moments I've ever had in my life. I've had a pretty easy life. But in one of the most awful moments I've ever had in my life. And he looks at me and said, let me, let me tell you a story. Now, Glenn had lost his wife to cancer probably six years before this and was left with four small children. And he said, let me tell you about when I lost my wife. He said, she had battled cancer for a few years and finally she had lost the battle and the Lord took her home. And he said, I... I don't remember what anybody said except for one person during that time. But I do remember who was there. And this is just a little side note. This is free of charge. When people are suffering and struggling, you don't have to have the answers. In fact, it's better not to say anything and just be with them in their struggle, in their mourning and in their grief. You don't have to have the answers. I know it's sometimes hard. We think, what am I supposed to say? Don't say anything. Just go and be with them because they'll remember that. As time heals and as God heals them through that, they'll be different, they'll be changed when they mourn this kind of mourning. But they'll remember you were there. They won't remember what you said unless you say something stupid. Because what happened to him is he was, shortly after his wife passed away, he had to go grocery shopping. He had four kids to care for and he was in a grocery store and a lady from his church came up to him, stopped him in the aisle. She was being kind and I'm sorry that your wife passed away. And said, yes, it's still very raw. And then she says, it's too bad you didn't believe enough to save her. And I thought, yeah, that would definitely burn memory into your mind. He said it took everything it was in him not to jump on her in the aisle. Because she had equated that the fact that God could not heal his wife was because he didn't believe enough. So it was, not only was it an accusation against him, that he wasn't, didn't believe enough, but it was an accusation against the God of all creation that he's incapable of moving if you don't believe enough. Hear me this morning if you hear nothing else. God is in control when your faith is weak. Now there may be moments in your life like in Mark 9 where you need to cry out, God help me with my unbelief. But do not, under, do not miss this this morning. He is not bound by your level of belief. He is in control. The church is gathered. They're in earnest prayer and they don't believe God will save Peter. There's no evidence that he would. I mean, James has been killed. Peter probably will be too. And yet God does bring him out of that. God is in control even when our faith is weak. Look in verse 16. But Peter continued knocking. So he hadn't given up. He's still at the gate. He's continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. They couldn't believe him. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James. So James not James, brother of John, but James, the half-brother of Jesus. Tell him to James, who's a leader of the church in Jerusalem, and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when they came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. I love that, no little disturbance. They're freaking out. Peter's gone. Now, there were 16 soldiers. And, and this is clearly, we know Peter's fate from this next verse. And Herod, after he had searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. That's why we know for certain that Peter was going to be killed that morning because if a prisoner escaped, the, uh, the guards received the punishment that that prisoner was going to receive. So now they've been put to death. And then something interesting happens in verse 19. 
So Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. It's an interesting moment because if you were using your inspired maps in the back of your, your Bibles, it would, you would know that Caesarea is kind of in the hill country and now he's going down to the coast, basically. He's going on vacation. Herod's like, I just need to get away. So he's going to go enjoy some time down at the coast. So hear this this morning. Last thing. God is in control even when the wicked prosper. There's nothing really redeeming about Herod. Herod's the persecutor of the church. He wants to destroy it. He, his goal is to please the Jews. And yet now he's going on vacation like it's no big deal. In verse 20, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, all having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. So the king's chamberlain's like his calendar guy. So he's mad at these people. I don't know what's happened. Herod seems to be able to be ticked off easily. And these people have, have gotten, gotten basically a hold of, of Herod's calendar guy. And, and even though he's on vacation, they've got a chance to come and see him. So they're, they're coming before Herod because their country depended on the king's country for food. So they want to bring peace. They don't want Herod mad because they're starving. Verse 21, on that appointed day, Herod put, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. So Herod comes out to see them. He makes time on his vacation. What I love about this moment is Josephus, the Jewish historian, actually records this moment and writes about it. And this is how he describes it. It gives us this visual. Josephus says, on the second day of the spectacle, glad in a garment woven completely of silver so that its texture was indeed wondrous. He entered the theater at daybreak. There the silver, illuminated by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously radiant and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon him. So picture this for a moment. Herod comes out. I mean, I picture him like a big disco ball in my mind because the, the light hits it, boom, and the sun hits in there just like, oh, it's so beautiful, look at him. Comes out and he sits on his throne. He's just eating it up. This is his moment. And then the people were shouting, because they're desperate for food. This is the voice of a God, not of a man. And he's just, oh, yes, more, more. Look at my jacket, it's beautiful. But look at verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give, glory to, give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. God killed him in that moment. And it says, immediately. This is God's heart in the matter of sin. This is God's natural reaction to sin, is to break out against it and destroy it. The fact that the clock keeps ticking is God's grace that we're allowed to continue to breathe and live. But hear this this morning. The wicked may prosper for a time, but God will have his day. And I think people struggle with the thought of hell. I've had many discussions on the reality of hell and I think many even believers in the church struggle with the thought of hell because it's, it's eternal. And it's a scary thought. 
And people will say, well, how can a loving God send people to this horrible place for all eternity? And I, I think it's not a misunderstanding of hell itself, but it's a misunderstanding of the God of creation. When I was in Jordan many years ago, um, I was in a taxi cab, and there was a guy, his English was great, and we're having this great discussion, spiritual discussion. I mean, it's one of my favorite things, and ministering with Muslims, the spiritual discussions are just easy. It's part of who they are. It's part of who we should be. And so we're having this spiritual discussion, and he's excited to want to talk about it, so we pull over, and he's very hospitable, and we start to have some tea together at this little tea shop. And we're sitting there, and he's struggling with the concept of hell. Because even though it's not in the Quran necessarily, many Muslims will hold the view that, that hell is really reserved for, like, Hitler, the worst of the worst. They don't like to tell anybody that you're going to hell forever. And so they're, they're kind of like, you know, you, good Muslims, you'll get to heaven, you'll get you know, your reward. You'll get, basically, you can do everything that you couldn't do on earth. Uh, bad Muslims, you'll go to hell for a little bit. God will kind of bake you for a moment and then bring you into heaven. Even Christians and Jews, because we're, we're at least hold to a view of God, we'll get cooked for a little bit longer, but then eventually we'll make it out to heaven. And they, they think even, you know, even unbelievers, they'll go for a lot longer, but eventually they'll get out because the concept of hell is a struggle. They think that a loving God would send people to an eternity separated from himself. And God just gave me the words when I was sitting there. And I, I looked across the street. There were these youths that were playing um, soccer. And they were, you know, ages 10 to 15 or 16. And I asked him, I said, what, what would happen if I got up from this table and walked across the street and I punched one of those kids right in the face? And he was like, well, they probably would try and gang up on you and beat you up. It's like, well, rightfully so. I punched him in the face. I said, what would happen if a police officer walked by here and I jumped up from our table and I punched him in the face? And he said, ooh. I mean, they would arrest you take you back to the prison and they would rough you up that's me paraphrasing he probably his English wasn't quite that good but they would mess you up and you'd be in prison for a while I said what it would happen if King Abdullah who was the king at the time had a parade coming down the street and I jumped up and I pushed my way through the crowd and I jumped up on his car and I punched him in the face and he was like we don't say such things out loud he said I, I mean you would disappear. They would torture you, and then they would kill you for that. I said, isn't it interesting that my crime was the same? It never changed. What I did wrong was the same. What changed was the stature of the person I did it to. What we need to understand about God's judgment is because he is an eternal God. He is greater than anything we can imagine. And so his punishment for sin is greater than anything we can imagine. And I share that would tell you that there may be a part of us at times that we're like, God, get them. I mean, I, I, I may be the only person that has those sinful moments, but there's been times in my life where I've thought, God, just get them. And he's just wrong. He's just mean. I, I had a good friend in Prague who said when he'd get cut off in work, he would or cut off in a car, he'd push the button on his brake to say... That's, that was his laser to shoot people when he got cut off. And so I think there's a part of us that wants to say, God, get them. But we should be broken for the lost. Because the sin against a holy and perfect God has no end to its punishment. 
But I want you to hear this morning, God is in control even when the wicked seem to prosper. In this moment, in this chapter, there's a, there's a lack of faith. There's a, there's a struggle with the lack of the leadership being killed. The, the church is afraid. Rome is going crazy, and it's not just Herod. And within 30 years, Rome would line the streets with the burning flesh of believers. This is a difficult time, and yet the people of God know that God is in control. If we can move from a place where we believe God is in control to where we're convinced and live lives of conviction, it changes everything. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you that you are faithful. Even when we are faithless. I thank you, Lord, that your faithfulness is not based on How well we believe or our struggles in a moment but that you are in control regardless of the circumstances around us and I pray Father that we would be a people that would not just say we believe but live lives of conviction and that it would be evident to, to friends and family and co-workers that our, as our lives go up and down that we would be men and women who do not go with the ebbs and flows of circumstances because we see your faithfulness and I pray that we would rest in it Father may we live lives worthy of knowing you thank you Lord for your faithfulness even when we are faithless we love you Lord and pray this in Jesus name Amen.